Find your place with me today in your Bible at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to be looking at verses 12 to 22, actually all the way down to 32, but we're only going to read verses 12 to 22. And we continue in this series of messages we entitled Dear Paul. For those of you that might just be joining us, the reason why we call this series Dear Paul is because they had written to Paul a letter asking him questions, wanting to know answers about things that were going on in the church and how to address them. And so it was a Dear Paul letter. And Paul responds with this book of 1 Corinthians. And in it, he gives these answers in return. Now, we've already spent two weeks in, or, or more than two weeks in 1 Corinthians 15, and we're going to be at least another week or two in this chapter because well, it's a long chapter, number one, and number two, it is so incredibly rich uh, with the things that God wants us to see. First uh, Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up if, in fact, the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Let's pray together. Lord, today we continue our study through 1 Corinthians and we come back to this resurrection theme. And I pray today, Lord, that you'll help us to see that in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the hope that we need to be able to live day by day. It's not only the hope for an eternity with you in heaven, it's the hope of a moment-by-moment -moment existence in the life you've given us today. You are alive, and because you are alive, we rejoice. We face the struggles and the trials of life knowing that even in the midst of those that the living Savior is with us. And we know that one day, one glorious day, you'll deliver us out of this world into your presence to be with the one who is alive forevermore. So Lord, today I pray that you'll breathe hope into the hearts and into the lives of the seemingly hopeless today. And I'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to talk to you for a few minutes today about hopelessness. Some of you don't have a personality that tends in that direction. You've never felt down or discouraged or depressed. You've never felt hopeless. But that's not where most of us are, and that's not where most of us live our lives. Uh, most of us have had moments, maybe lengthy periods of time, when we have felt that sense of hopelessness and we wonder how to deal with it. And the answer is found in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
in the power of the resurrection of Jesus. The general social survey, a survey that's been done every year since the early 1970s, asks people to rate their happiness level. Between the years 1990 and 2018, the share of Americans who put themselves in the lowest happiness category increased by more than 50%. And I remind you, that's pre-pandemic. I wonder what it would be today, post-pandemic. But really the greatest or most difficult news for us to, to hear comes from abroad. Each year, Gallup surveys roughly 150,000 people in over 140 countries about their emotional lives, their experiences of negative emotions that are related to stress, sadness, anger, worry, physical pain. All of those things reached a record high in 2021. Gallup asked people in this survey to rate their lives on a scale from zero to 10, with zero meaning you're living your worst possible life, and 10 meaning you're living your best. In 2005, only 1.6% of people worldwide rated their lives as a zero. But as of 2021, the share of people reporting the worst possible lives had more than quadrupled. There's a lot of hopelessness in the world around us. If you haven't noticed that, you're not paying attention. As a matter of fact, there are people that are sitting in this room today that have that sense of hopelessness about them. And hopelessness is like a cancer. It metastasizes it spreads throughout your being, like cancer spreads throughout your body, and it chokes out any sense of vitality that you ever thought you had. It destroys not only you, but it destroys those around you. It destroys marriages, and it destroys children, and it destroys friendships. It destroys careers, people who have found themselves in a place of hopelessness and like a cancer that's spreading, it's spreading all over their lives and they can't seem to find a reason to go forward. It's easy for us to, to see hopelessness when we're talking about people that are sad or depressed or people that are lonely or confused. For instance, there's, there's, a, there's the man that just can't seem to find any reason for life. And he's looking for a way to end it all so he can escape what he feels is this constant pain of just living. There's the woman who desperately wants to be happy in her marriage, but has resigned herself to live with the misery that she seemingly can't escape. There's the teenager that lives with low self-esteem and feelings of inferiority who feels like an outcast, and that teenager feels alone in the world, even when he's surrounded or she is surrounded by crowds of people. They feel as if they're all alone, and nobody even notices them. There's the senior adult that's been forgotten by her family, and 
They, she lays in a bed in a personal care facility wondering why she even exists or what purpose her life has in this world. Why can't she just die? Or there's the child that's driven from one event to another by parents that are sometimes living out their own dreams through their children or who are desperately afraid their children won't get the same opportunities that other children receive. I'll never forget a few years ago in this very room right here in the front, one of our young girls, a middle school girl, came walking down the aisle and I had heard about some of the success that she was enjoy in, enjoying in the athletic events that she was participating in. A lot of practice, a lot of extra activity had to go into it, a lot of preparation, but she was succeeding and she was winning and she was at the top. And she walked down the aisle and as I was seeing her coming, I, I congratulated her. I said, congratulations. I'm so proud of you. you, you you're you doing so wonderful. And I hear good things about what's happening in, in the sport in which you're participating. And I said, this must be your most favorite thing in life to do. And I'll never forget the look on her face. It went crestfallen. There were a sadness that you could then see in her eyes. And she said, no, I don't really like doing this, but my parents want me to do this. And then I asked her the question, I said, well, what do you want to do? What would you like to be doing? And she went on to express to me something that she would like to be doing that wasn't athletic at all. Wouldn't have required nearly as much time in their life, but wasn't athletic at all. And I said to her, you need to make sure your parents know how you feel. And for a brief few moments, behind the smile and the trophies and the wins, there was, for that moment, that crestfallen look and that sadness in her eyes that helped me to recognize, for her, it was sort of hopeless. I can't overcome what my parents want me to do. I can't overcome them living their lives through me. It's easy to recognize hopelessness when you see sadness or depression or you see loneliness or confusion or others of these kind of things. But I want to remind you that hopelessness isn't just characterized by those kinds of emotions. There are people that don't believe in God or don't believe in a life after this life, and they live every moment, they live every moment trying to squeeze out of this life as much pleasure, as much success as they can through the physical and the temporal experiences of life because they're hopeless. I mean, I get 60 or 70 or 80 or 90 years, and it's over. There's nothing more. So I had better get the best I can get out of what I've got. There are people who are workaholics and others who are doing their best to live their best life now because they believe that there is no life after death. They're not guided by eternal perspectives. They're not guided by eternal truths. And so 
in the midst of what seemingly is a matter of climbing the ladder of success and making more out of themselves, the result really is a sense of hopelessness. It looks different to those that are sad and to those that are depressed and to those that are discouraged and despondent, but it's nevertheless hopelessness because they're living in the belief that this is all there is. You better get all the gusto you can get while you got the opportunity. They are the people that are living with no eternal perspective, no understanding of eternal values, no sense of eternal purpose or meaning to life. All that they know is the material now, and all they seek are its temporal benefits. And hopelessness might not look like what you think it looks like, but in fact, they're living a very hopeless life because they see themselves as nothing more than ending up in a box at the end of life six feet under, and that's the end. Hopelessness isn't just the curse of the down and out. It also affects those whose lives seem grand and exciting but they don't have any hope of life after this life, so they hopelessly live as if this life is all there is to experience. Did you hear that? They hopelessly live as if this life is all there is to experience. I saw this side of the hopelessness in the words of a young girl, a young lady, I should say. She wrote them on an atheist website. You realize that there are websites for people to go and profess their atheism or that they're leaving Christianity. And she went and she had something to say, and this is what she wrote. I'm confused. I always believed science would be the cure-all for my problems, but I don't know if I can keep living without eternal life. I guess I'll just have to find a way for myself to make it through the meaninglessness of my existence. I just wish I knew of someone who could show me the path to eternal life. If science can't provide the answers, though, then who or what can? And then she has a sighing emoji. She continues, doesn't it seem like there is a higher power that gives our lives purpose? Well, science says there isn't, so there isn't. And she's a young woman that seemingly has it all, well-educated, a young woman who could have a bright career ahead of her. She could have lots of successes. She's already had a number of successes in her life, and yet she's living a life that is hopeless because she can't find the meaning and she can't find the purpose. She can't find the reason for going on. She has no eternal perspective. She believes this is all there is, and if this is all there is, then it's just sort of meaningless. Haven't you watched Hollywood? They live in big houses. They drive really expensive cars. Their name is in lights. Their names are in lights. They're famous and well-known. They can't stay married. They're mostly miserable. Many of them are so miserable that they take their own lives because they don't want to go on living. 
Not because they haven't succeeded in life, but because behind the success, there's a hopelessness to them. They see no purpose for their lives. They see no meaning in this life. Well, I've got good news for you today. The resurrection of Jesus shows us the way out of hopelessness. And I hope you'll listen to me if you're one of those who's struggling in this area of hopelessness today. There were people in Corinth who denied that there was going to be a resurrection of the bodies of the believers in Jesus. They were a little bit like the Sadducees during Jesus' time. They didn't believe in the resurrection. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. And there were some of those kinds of people. They weren't Sadducees, but there were some of those kinds of people who were in the city of Corinth and maybe even in the church at Corinth who didn't believe that there was going to be a resurrection. I mean, after all, what do you want with these bodies? I mean, who would want something with these bodies? Why would you want this body to be resurrected? The spirit, okay, that could be something good. But the body, that's something bad. You don't want anything to do with that body. And they were teaching that whole thought, that whole philosophy, that whole idea that there is no resurrection of the body. And so Paul seeks to prove them wrong. From verse 12 to verse 32, he seeks to prove them wrong. He does it first historically. In verses 1 to 11, he does that. But then he does it logically in verses 12 to 19. Then he does it theologically in verses 20 to 28. And then he does it experientially in 29 to 34. But whether historically or logically or theologically or experientially, he's arguing against this whole idea that there is no resurrection. And the reason is because if there is no resurrection, then there is no resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if there is no resurrection of Jesus Christ, then this life is all there is. And if this life is all there is, well, we of all people are most pitiable. We're pretty miserable. The fact of the matter is we're still lost in our sin and we have no hope beyond this life. And we really have very little for uh, hope in this life. And the consequences of a belief like that That there is no resurrection, and consequently there is no resurrection of Christ, is devastating. It's devastating to the Christian message. It's devastating to the truth that we believe and to the hope that we find in the Lord Jesus. Paul lists seven things. If there is no resurrection, and consequently there is no resurrection of Christ from the grave, he lists seven things negatively, seven things that would be true. Notice them again, verse 14. And if Christ is not risen, number one, then our preaching is vain. The apostles' preaching would be meaningless. That that would mean that you being here today, I'm not an apostle, but it would mean you being here today and listening to the preaching of the Scripture and the teaching of the Scripture is just a meaningless exercise for you. He says, secondly, in verse 14, your faith is also empty. That is, the Corinthians' faith would be worthless. You may say you have faith, but it has nothing that it can accomplish for you. It's basically useless. You're believing in something. You're believing in belief. There really is no benefit to your believing. In verse 15, he gives you the third one. He says, yes, and we are found false witnesses of God. In other words, the apostles would be liars. They would be false witnesses. 
They wouldn't have been telling the truth. All this time that they've been talking about the resurrection of Christ and a future resurrection of the believers' bodies, all of that would have just been stories they were telling. It would have been the magic that they were selling. Fourthly, in verse 17, he says, if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. The Christian's belief, that is their belief in Christ, would be baseless. He can't help you. You can put your faith in him, but it isn't going to accomplish anything. You can say he was a great man and trust in him, but it isn't going to have any long-term eternal benefit to you. The second part of verse 17, he says, and you are still in your sins. Wow. If there is no resurrection, therefore Christ didn't rise from the grave, then the fact of the matter is not only is your faith meaningless, but the reality is you're still lost in your sins. That reality that you are separated from God and that your sin is going to be punished one day is going to be the reality with which you have to live the rest of your life. He says, number six in verse 18, this negative, if there is no resurrection and Christ didn't rise, verse 18, then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. It means that the Corinthians' deceased loved ones would be gone forever. Your loved ones they're in a box somewhere. They're in a sliding drawer at a mausoleum somewhere. They're spread as ashes on the waters or on the ground somewhere. That's just the end. That's all there is to it. And then seventh, he said, if there is no resurrection and Christ didn't rise from the, from the grave. Verse 19, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Do you hear what he says? If you've believed in Christ and you've accepted the message that we've preached to you, though it's a lie, and you've believed somehow that this message is going to change your life and give you hope beyond the grave, then you're the craziest of the crazy. I mean, you're the individuals that have the most pitiable existence there is that you would believe such a thing when there is not, not such a thing. I mean, why would you want to do that? I mean, if this is all there is, this life is all there is, there is nothing eternal beyond this life, and you've got to get all you can get while you've got time to get it, you better get with it and you better get with it now because once it's gone, it's gone, and you're gone as well. And by the way, if you get it all, before it's gone, the reality is it'll never really satisfy you anyway because it still lacks a sense of, of meaning to you because there doesn't seem to be any purpose to it whatsoever. Such that Paul's overall conclusion is all the way down in verse 32. Look down to verse 32. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts, that's the enemies, that's not literal animals, those are the, that's a a figurative word speaking of those who opposed him. If I fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? I mean, why was I out here preaching the gospel, going from place to place, encountering these enemies that were constantly after me and wanted to destroy me? And then he concludes, he says, if the dead do not rise, here it comes, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Do you hear the hopelessness in those words? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Your life doesn't really matter. 
What you do with your life doesn't really matter. How long your life lasts doesn't really matter. What you get out of this life, no matter how good it is, it doesn't really matter. Because when you die, well, you're just dead. And the world goes on without you. And you didn't really make any difference because most people won't remember you. And even your family, after a number of generations, will rarely ever think of you. I mean, life in this particular philosophy is a pretty miserable life. If there is no resurrection, thus there is no resurrection of Jesus Christ, then there really is no hope, not only uh, in the now and now, there is no hope in the hereafter, and you're just living a hopeless existence. Maybe for you it's sad and confused and depressed and despondent, or for others it's workaholism, it's success, it's achievement, it's, it's all of the things that people think of that bring some kind of meaning to life. But really in the end, you just better get the best you can get, and you better get all of it you can get, because when you're gone, you're gone, that's it. What a hopeless way to live. That expression is the expression of hopelessness. And he understood that if the Corinthians believed that there was no resurrection, thus there was no resurrection of Christ from the grave, that they were then being sentenced to a philosophy of hopelessness for the rest of their lives. Actually, this particular quote that's found there in verse 32 comes from Isaiah 22, verse 13. And in that verse of Scripture, the prophet Isaiah is warning the people of Jerusalem that their sinfulness would be their downfall. And so Isaiah comes to them and he says, you need to weep. You need to mourn. You need to repent of your sinfulness. Because if you don't repent of your sinfulness, the end result is going to be what? God's going to send a foreign nation and use that nation as his instrument to punish you. And he's going to carry a whole bunch of you away as captives. And he's going to destroy the city and knock down this temple. If you don't mourn and weep and you don't repent. And what did the people say in response to Isaiah? In response to Isaiah, they answered and reacted flippantly saying, Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And that's how a lot of people live their lives. In other words, they behaved according to their hopeless philosophy that denied the eternal realities. Why is it, when you look around, that people live the way they live? Because they have no hope. They're living in a hopeless existence. They don't think there is anything eternal. They don't believe there is an eternal God. They're living for the here and now. Get all that you can get out of this life as quickly as you can get it because you could go early. But even if you go late, the reality is you're going one way or the other, and that's the end. And you better have as much joy and happiness and all of the success that you can possibly achieve right now because once it's done, it's done. And they're living out that hopelessness of life. They're living out that let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Let's just get it all as fast as we can get it because we're going to die. And they're living without that eternal reality. Can I just stop here for a moment? That's what's different about Christians. That's one of the things that's different about you and me. 
in us believing in the resurrected Christ. It is believing that there is something beyond this world, there is something greater than this world, that there is purpose for your life in this world, and when you're taken out of this world, you don't just go into nothingness, you go into heaven to be with Christ forever. And it breathes hope into your existence. It breathes reason for you to go on living. It helps you in the midst of the struggles and the trials and the tribulations of life to know that nothing can separate me from the love of God. And even if I have to go through this and he's not going to deliver me out of it, he has a purpose for it, some good that he's going to accomplish from it. Because Jesus is alive. Jesus once told a story about a man that was living a hopeless life. You may remember it. It's found in Luke chapter 12. I'm not going to read the whole story to you, but it, it's a man who had a, who had a field, and he was farming it, and the grain was growing, and it was producing at incredible levels, so much so that he didn't know what to do. He had more grain that he could handle, more grain that he could put up. And so he thought to himself, I've got this fertile farm and it's producing this fine crop. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to tear down my barns and I'm going to build bigger ones. And then I'm going to have enough room to house everything that's coming in, all of the produce that I've got. I mean, I've got to get it now. It's what I've got now and it's right here in front of me. I better enjoy it now. I better save up as much of it as I possibly can. And then he says, and I'll sit back and say to myself, my friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. You will die this very night. Then who will get everything you worked for? Yes, Jesus says, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth but not have a rich relationship with God. You find a man who is living for the here and now. I mean, I got a field that's producing more than I know how to handle and more than I can keep in what I've got built. So I've got to tear it down and build more because I got to make sure that I keep it all for myself because I'm supposed to live this hopeless life of eat. Drink and be merry. What if I were to suggest to you that being happy all the time in this life isn't always God's eternal purpose? And sometimes the tr struggles and the difficulties and the hardships and the heartaches that we have to go through have eternal value to them. A little more than 40 years ago, there was a scholar and researcher in the psychology of happiness. His name was Philip Brickman, and he published one of the first scientific studies on happiness. It was a paper that was entitled, listen to this title, Lottery Winners and Accident Victims, Is Happiness Relative? The New York Times called it the peanut butter and jelly sandwich of happiness studies, meaning that's, that's the go-to. This is where you got to go. I mean, you can get through the day if you got a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, right? Not long after that study was published, Brickman went to the University of Michigan 
where he became the director of the Institute of Social Research. It was a position that was reserved for academics at the pinnacle of their careers. He seemed destined for even greater things, more scholarship, research, writing. One of his closest friends said about him, he wanted the world to be a more humane place. But on May the 13th, 1982, at the age of 38, Philip Brickman made his way onto the roof of Tower Plaza. That's a tall building in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Onto the roof of Tower Plaza and jumped. It was a 26-story fall. According to those who knew him, Brickman was not a man who struggled with ongoing intractable suicidal impulses. One of his former graduate students said, To imagine what could have driven him to do that, I almost had to imagine a different person. A close friend said that he envied Brickman's family life, and on the surface, there was certainly a lot to envy. He had three adorable girls, he had a lovely wife, and an idyllic farm that was outside of Ann Arbor. But his scholarship on the subject of happiness, the successes that he was achieving in his life weren't enough. Eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow you die. That's, that's a hopeless existence. As the New York Times article said, Philip Brickman was an expert in the psychology of happiness, but he couldn't make his own pain go away. Hopelessness doesn't always look sad, forlorn, overwhelmed, or depressed. Sometimes it looks like success, achievement, recognition, and promise. And the reason is because the person is living without eternity in view, living without the eternal understanding of the bigger picture that there is a God who is at work. Paul wanted to make sure the Corinthians knew that Christ was alive and that there is a resurrection day for all of his children. And that eternal truth, that Christ is alive, turns all of those seven negatives into positives. Now, it's not written that way here, but let me just give them to you. Because Christ is alive, are you with me? Because Christ is alive, those seven negatives that we read earlier are now turned into positives. First of all, preaching is powerful and helpful. I'm glad to be able to tell you that this morning. (laughs) Faith is worthwhile. Scripture is reliable or dependable. What the apostles were saying about the resurrection of Jesus gets written down in this book so that the Scripture is reliable and dependable. Here's one. Grace is amazing. It's amazing when he says your faith is futile. No, it didn't. No, it didn't. Your faith brings the grace of God into your life that transforms you. Forgiveness is forever. It is forever when God forgives. Death is defeated. I'm glad to be able to tell all of you who have loved ones that you have laid their bodies to rest somewhere or you have spread their ashes in some fashion. I'm glad to be able to tell you that Death is defeated. It's not destroyed yet. Look down in this chapter just a little bit further. Look down to 
uh, verse 25. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Death is defeated, but it's not yet destroyed. But one day it will even be destroyed. And may I say finally, number seven, hope is alive because Jesus is alive. No matter what you're facing, no matter what you're going through, whether it's the pinnacle of success or it's the pits of your experience, the fact of the matter is that hope is alive. And you don't have to live hopeless because there is a God in heaven. Number one, if you're on this side of things where you're depressed and despondent and discouraged and defeated, there is a resurrected Savior who sees you and loves you and cares for you and wants to help you and wants to lift you and wants to carry you and wants to go through this with you and ultimately use that for his glory. And if you're on the other side of success and prosperity and blessing and achievement and accomplishment, he wants to give meaning to those things that transcends the world in which we live. Why? Because he is alive. He can do that because he is living. Hope is alive. You don't have to live hopeless. You say, where do you turn, pastor, when you sometimes feel hopeless? And I do sometimes feel hopeless. Where do you turn? I turn to the resurrection. And I remember that it looked pretty hopeless on Friday when they crucified Jesus and they took his body down and they wrapped it up and they put it in a tomb and they sealed it shut and they put the guards out front and it was pretty hopeless. I'm sort of like the disciples sometimes hiding away, afraid for what comes next. But then Sunday morning comes. And the one who was placed in that tomb comes forth victorious out of that tomb. And it changes everything. It means that whatever I go through may feel like death. But out of death, God can bring resurrection. That out of the worst moments of my life, that God can bring good for me and glory to himself. It means that. There is a purpose, even if I don't understand it. Why are my feet and my legs and my, my waist as it is? Why do I have to live like this? Why do I have to exist like this? I don't know, but I know the living God has a purpose and a reason for what he's doing. And I can trust him because he's alive. There are eternal realities the choices you make in life ought to be made in light of the eternal realities of life. Too often, how do, I get, how do I get our young people? How do I get our couples, young couples, young singles? How do I get our middle age? That's where I am. That is, if I'm going to live to be 140... or 130, I should say. How do I get those in the middle years of life? How do I get you that are in the later years of life with me? How do I get you to understand that Jesus is alive and everything you do has to be done in light of the eternal 
not just the temporal. It's not just done because your parents want you to do it. It's done because God has a purpose for you doing it. The resurrection of Jesus brings hope, breathes hope and life into everything. He can bring life out of death because he conquered death to live forevermore. Do you understand that this power of the resurrection, what it can do if your marriage is dead, he can resurrect it. If your testimony is ruined, he can resurrect it. If your influence is gone, he can resurrect it. If your calling is forgotten, he can resurrect it. If your faith is failing, he can resurrect it. Because he's alive and he conquered death and he is all-powerful, there isn't anything that he can't do if he chooses so to do. Keep your Bible at 1 Corinthians 15 for a moment, but just turn back for a moment to Psalm 73. Psalm 73. When you don't live in light of the eternal, you end up with a philosophy of eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. You don't care about anybody else. You don't care about anything else. You only care about what other people think about you. You only care about getting the most that you can get out of this life. You only care about having as much pleasure as you can possibly have. You don't think about anything else. That's a hopeless way to live. In Psalm 73, I can't read all of this psalm to you, but just look at it, verse 1, with me for a moment. Asaph is writing, and he says, Truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. But as for me, but as for me, have you ever felt like this? My feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the boastful. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for there are no pangs or pain in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walks through the earth. Do you hear his description? I'm looking at people around me that are living as if there is no God and don't care about the true and living God. And it seems like they're living their lives on the top of the world. And here I am trying to obey God and live in light of the eternal in one problem after another, in one struggle after another. It doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem fair. Have you ever felt that way? That's a hopeless way to think. That's a hopeless way to live. It doesn't seem fair. The psalmist goes on down in verse 12. Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. You hear what he says? I mean, they're getting away with murder, if you will, and I've just gone ahead and done, tried to do what is right and gotten no reward for it. Verse 14, for all day long I've been plagued and chastened every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, 
I had said this out loud where others could hear it, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. I would have misled an entire generation. Now listen, when I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. Until, circle that word, highlight it, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. You hear what he says? I was living my whole life looking at the here and now as if this is all there is. Eat, drink, and be merry. And this crowd over here that has no interest in the things of God or in a God at all seems to be living on top of the world. Everything seems to be so wonderful and turning up roses everywhere. They just keep succeeding at every turn. Life seems to be something that's wonderful all the time for them. They're never sick. They never have hardship. They never have troubles. They never have toil. But me, I'm trying to do the right thing. And every time I turn around, somebody hits me. Somebody's angry with me. I'm getting pushed down. I'm getting in trouble. I'm having hardship. I'm having difficulty. It's not fair until he stops and he thinks of the eternal. And suddenly his hopelessness becomes hopefulness. Hope is in short supply in our culture these days. I don't know if you know that or not. If you don't, it's because you're not paying attention. It's because you're fooled by the smiles and the seeming successes that people have. Hope is in short supply in our culture these days. If Jesus isn't alive... And life as one sees it now on this pain-filled planet is all there is, then human existence is indeed meaningless. You might as well walk out of this door never to come back, put your Bible away, put it in a fireplace and burn it up. Never mention the name of Christ. Never mention the things of God. Never be interested in the things of God again because the reality is there isn't anything else. You might as well go and do as much as you can to eat, drink, and be merry because you're going to die, and that's the end. You better live it up while you got it. About 15 years ago, Tim Keller wrote a book called The Reason for God, sort of an apologetic kind of approach. I'd heard some people talking about it, and I'd read some reviews of it, and so I ordered a copy for myself, and, and I read it. I've read two or three of his books, and this was one of the books that I read that he wrote. On page 210 in his book, Tim Keller writes this about his unbelieving friends about those who don't believe there is a God, who don't believe there is any life after this life, who believe that this is all there is and you just better live with that hopelessness. So go eat, drink, and be merry because when you die, there is nothing else. He writes, I always say to my skeptical secular friends that even if they can't believe in the resurrection, they should want it to be true. Do you hear that? They should want it to be true. Now listen carefully. Most of them care deeply about justice for the poor, alleviating hunger and disease, and caring for the environment. 
Yet many of them believe that the material world was caused by accident and that the world and everything in it will eventually simply burn up in the death of the sun. They find it discouraging that so few people care about justice without realizing that their own worldview undermines any motivation to make the world a better place. Why sacrifice for the needs of others if in the end, nothing we do will make any difference? If the resurrection of Jesus happened, however, that means there's infinite hope and reason to pour ourselves out for the needs of the world. Do you hear his argument? It's dead on. If you have no hope and you believe this is all there is and you might as well get all the gusto you can get out of this life because when you're in a box somewhere, that's the end and there is nothing more. Why should we do anything for anybody else? Let's just all be centered on ourselves and think of ourselves to make sure we get the most out of it for ourselves. Who cares about anybody else? But if there is a God in heaven and there are eternal values then those eternal values make a difference and the living God is the one before whom you're going to have to stand one day and that makes a major difference. Can I just say three things in closing? First of all, I want you to know that Christ's resurrection power will save you. You say, how can I be saved? I want to be saved. Some of you are lost. Some of you watching are lost. You're lost in your sins. You know something's not right. You know something's not the way it should be. You've looked for meaning. You've looked for happiness. You've looked for peace. You've looked for release from the guilt that you live under. You've looked for it everywhere you can can look. You've looked at it at the end of a bottle. You've looked at it at the end of a needle. You've looked at it everywhere. You've sniffed it up your nose. You've hoped to find some way to escape where you're living. And if it's not one of those things that's degradating in society, it's one of those things where I'm living to get as much as I can get so that I can get to the pinnacle of of all pinnacles because I'll know I'll be happy if I get there. And you got there and you found out that it wasn't nearly what you thought it was going to be. You remember when you bought your first new car? I can't remember. It was a four, but I can't remember what model it was. It was $4,000, first car we bought new. That was a long time ago. $4,000. I drove it off the parking lot, feeling really good about myself, got my wife next to me in my new car, feeling like I'm somebody. But over the coming days, I got what they call buyer's remorse. And I thought to myself, this doesn't feel nearly as good as I thought it was going to feel. Can I just tell you something? Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he can do something for you that no one else can do and nothing else can do, and that is to save you from your sins. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, listen to it. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
you can go away from here today knowing your sins are forgiven, that you're a child of God, that you have a home reserved for you in heaven, and that there's an eternal purpose for your life, eternal meaning to your life. Whether you see it all in this life or not, you will ultimately see it when you get to heaven on the other side and God makes it all clear to you. There'll be something that you'll come to understand and you'll recognize, I am so grateful that I came to the living Christ and received him as my Savior. Christ's resurrection power will not only save you, Christ's resurrection power will enable you. If you will, it'll sustain you. Say, how do I go through life? How do I get through the stuff that you got to go through? Well, listen to what he says. Paul is in Ephesians chapter 1. He's, he's talking about the Ephesian believers. He says, I, I, every time I think about you, I pray for you. And then he begins listing the things that he prays for. And listen to what he says that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness, now listen, what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. You hear what he says? Because Christ is alive. He can help you. He can sustain you. He can strengthen you. He can bless you. He's alive. He's not in a grave somewhere. You don't go look at a monument. And number three, Christ's resurrection power will save you. It'll enable you. But may I say finally, it'll deliver you. I got good news for all of you who know the Lord Jesus Christ. One day, if Jesus doesn't come first, your body's going to be buried. I'm going to be buried down here at the cemetery at the end of the road. I want to be as close to the road so you have to ride by and see my grave <laughs> as much as is possible. But as surely as you put my body in that grave, I got, I got news for you. I'm coming out. First Thessalonians 4.14 For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. So we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. There's a resurrection day. When our loved ones get up out of the grave. I'm going to talk about those bodies that God gives to us in the coming two weeks. So hang on. But you get a brand new glorified body. It won't look It'll be something like what you got. It'll be recognizable as your body right now. But it won't be like your body right now. Subject to all the things your bodies are subject to. And he's going to deliver you one day. I thank God that he's alive.